This episode was created on traditional, unceded Coast Salish territories of the Songhees and Wasanich people. You're listening to Beyond the Jargon, a jargon-free look at graduate students and their research journey here at UVic. Welcome to Beyond the Jargon. I'm your host for today, Max Monday. I have David Huxtable, a PhD candidate in sociology with me in the studio. How are you doing? I'm well, thank you. That's good. Okay, David, your research focuses on international union federations. Yes. Can you tell us about that? Sure. So there are two sets of union federations that belong to kind of an umbrella organization called global unions. Mm -hmm. On the one hand, you have what are called global union federations Mm -hmm. or GUFs. And those are international federations of unions in particular industrial sectors. So the Canadian Union of Public Employees, for example, belongs to PSI, which is Public Services International. Okay. The steelworkers belong to what's called Industrial, which is an international union federation that covers a number of different sectors. Mm -hmm. And then on the other hand, on the other side, you have the International Trade Union Confederation. And that confederation is a federation of what we call labor centrals. And labor centrals would be organizations like the Canadian Labor Congress or the American Federation of Labor, CIO, that are already umbrella organizations, national umbrellas of national unions. Okay, so most of these unions or union federations, other than I guess the uh, Steel Workers Federation, is not for a specific um, trade or specific like group of people then, hey? Well, it it's no longer like that, mm-hmm. right? So uh, these federations began back in the late 1800s, early 1900s. Mm-hmm. And at the time, the unions were almost all broken down into specific trade areas. Okay. And at one point, there used to be dozens of international, what used to be called international trade secretariats, are now called global union federations. But as those um, trade unions collapsed into industrial unions, Mm -hmm. so different machinist groups, um, you know, that sort of thing collapsed into, say, the Canadian auto workers, right, where you have these industrial-based unions, not trade-based unions. And that same process has been occurring at the international level, so we now have maybe a half dozen to half dozen, eight uh, different global union federations. Okay. So that means that uh, there were the whole bunch of different people making an automobile. They all come together and make the automotive union. And then that kind of like grows from there. And um, I guess they become more organized. Correct. Uh, And a lot of this began happening in the mid 20th century when there were changes to the industrial process. Okay. Uh, You know, the the creation of these, uh, the changes in the factories Mm -hmm. and in the labor process led to different forms of labor organization. You mentioned that there are two different federations that we talk about. Are you focusing on one or the other? Or are you focusing on both? I have been focusing on the International Trade Union Confederation, although my research did have, through my research, I did end up interviewing people from the IUF, which is an abbreviated acronym for an extremely long <laughs> uh, union name that basically boils down to the Union International Union of Food and Allied Workers, although the, the actual name is several words long. Mm-hmm. And I also interviewed somebody from the Building Workers International. But mostly, yes, I'm focused on the ITUC. Okay. 
let's have a timeline of um, actions from the ITUC. You said that they, was the ITUC kind of founded in the late 1800s, early 1900s? Uh, well, the ITUC itself has only existed since 2006, oh, wow. and it's an amalgamation or a merger of the what was the International Confederation of Free Trade Unions, mm-hmm. which was an anti-communist, social democratic kind of liberal kind of trade union that emerged in the post-war period in opposition to the WFTU, the World Federation of Trade Unions, which was a communist-aligned trade union uh, federation. So the ICFTU, the Social Democrats and Liberals, Mm -hmm. merged in 2006 with the WCL, which was a faith-based union federation that emerged initially as the International Federation of Christian Trade Unions just after World War I. But the ICFTU and the ITUC can trace their lineage, for lack of a better word, Mm -hmm. back to the International Federation of Trade Unions around the First World War. It began just prior to the First World War, but didn't really pull it together until after the war. Okay. Can you tell us the main, I guess, conflict between the socialist liberal trade union and the communist trade union? Yeah, that tension began almost immediately after the First World War. On the one hand, you have the Bolshevik Revolution in Russia, Mm -hmm. and on the other hand, you have a trade union movement in the rest of Europe, which is, I wouldn't say moving to the right, but certainly not convinced of the Bolshevik project, Mm -hmm. and that created great tensions. That, I call it labor's Cold War, and it actually began long before the Cold War between the Soviet Union and the United States. But in the immediate period after the Second World War, uh, that Cold War became more intense. The Americans and the Russians union federations were intimately tied up with their intelligence agencies and were highly manipulative and basically set the project of transnational labor solidarity back by at least a generation. So Hmm. it wasn't until the end of the Cold War in the 1990s that, you know, there was the there was an opening for folks who had not talked to each other before to talk about collaboration more easily. Mm-hmm. And you now, the ITUC is now the most, it's certainly the most representative trade union federation that's existed in history. Many of the f- communist unions or the left unions in Eastern Europe and other, other places in the world left the WFTU in the 1990s and still are leaving it, that organization and joining the ITUC. And then, of course, the, the faith-based unions merged with them in 2006. So the ITUC then must have very, I guess, I want to say faith-based, but like a Christian views. Is that the correct? The WCL was, um, well, they, they were a Christian organization until the, when they were the International Christian Federation, blah, 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 mm-hmm. up until the mid-1960s. Uh, they were largely based out of the Netherlands and Christian. And, and very strongly Catholic. In the 60s, they began to open themselves up and said, no, 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 we, we want to be an organization of all faiths. And so then they became the WCL. They've always been the smallest of the three. They, uh, I mean, it really wasn't, a, you know, to some observers, it wasn't so much a merger as much as the the social Democrats just kind of absorbing the faith-based uh, union federations, really. Okay, interesting. So it's more so it, they aren't, they kind of like not took over, but yeah, as you said, absorbed them and they yeah. aren't very 
would you say like in your research that you found that there are a lot of Christian or, um, like, yeah, I guess like Western theological views on things? No, 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 absolutely not. No, okay. I would say the folks that I interviewed in Brussels who work for the ITUC are, <laughs> those folks are solidly social democratic mm-hmm. They of the, of the Western European tradition for sure. The WCL does not appear to have made much of an impression on the new organization. Okay. I mean, to be fair, the ITUC, in terms of its membership, is now a very big tent, right? Everybody from pretty hardcore communist organizations to fairly conservative uh, religious ones. Mm-hmm. In this group, we kind of have a timeline now. In 2006, the ITUC was... I guess found, not founded, but like it mm-hmm. became the ITUC. These um, these different organizations. What is the biggest challenge to the ITUC in regards to making sure that union workers are treated fairly? Well, what I have come to argue is that the the greatest challenge facing the leadership of the ITUC is actually reconciling these like what are of course like incredibly diverse interests of the global working class and that is that there is always and there has been for you know since at least the 1960s um and increasingly so as more and more unions from the global south joined mm-hmm. into the uh, became part of the international the 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 greatest tensions have been around things like how do we respond to the expansion of transnational capital the european and north american folks who were dominant in the icftu and are still somewhat dominant in the ituc argued for positions around curtailing the power of capital to move and things like that and many of their member organizations in the global south said hey this is just protectionism and our members need to work as well so that's a profound tension within the organization and then the second thing that comes off of that and this is where my research ended up going was that as representative of the world's workers as the ITUC is, and as I said, that it's the most representative worker organization that's existed, mm-hmm. it still only represents unionized workers. And most of the world's population are not unionized workers, and many of them are in jobs that would be difficult to organize in a traditional trade union s- sense. I did research in India where 93% of the workforce is in what we call informal labor relations. That means that they fall outside of regulatory frameworks. They don't have a traditional employer-employee relationship. Many of them are own account or piecemeal workers. And the idea of just organizing them into trade unions and getting them collective agreements, as we did in the large industrial sectors of the North, is just not going to happen. And so the second, one of the biggest challenges facing the ITUC and its membership is how do we incorporate the needs of workers that don't fall within these traditional uh, work sites? Mm-hmm. And by traditional, I, I mean really just work sites that have existed since the mid 20th century. I mean, it's not like work has always looked like this. Yeah. Let's talk about the ITUC and um, why it would be of use to, say, a local union. 
Well, to be honest, it depends on where the local union is. One of the things that I've always found frustrating is that I find Canadian, the Canadian labor movement fairly parochial, frankly, and I find Canadians fairly parochial mm-hmm. overall, so I think the labor movement just reflects that reality. The ILO, for example, the International Labor Organization and the regulations that, that come out of that and the norm setting that comes out of that, which is the central preoccupation of the ITUC, mm-hmm. It has almost no impact on Canadians because Canada doesn't depend on the UN or the ILO for assistance. Mm -hmm. However, in a country like India, where the government is still engaged in a nation-building project, they do seek the help of various UN bodies, including the International Labour Organization. So what happens at the international level has more of an impact on the national and local level in a country like India, where the state is at least partially dependent upon the interstate system for support around economic development. Mm -hmm. So that's, so honestly, why would Canadians care about the ITUC, Canadian workers? (laughs) <laughs> outside of, you know, a sense of solidarity with other workers, it's it's hard to make that argument. Like, okay. they, they're certainly in a matter of exchange mm-hmm. relations. Canadian workers don't get much out of that membership. But that's, like I said, that's different in a country like India. So why do you as a Canadian concern yourself with uh, learning about the ITUC if it does nothing for you? Well, because... Capital is global and the labor movement has to match it. I like to think of sociology somewhat as, you know, doing a history of the present. Mm -hmm. And we need to, as sociologists, not just kind of look at what's happening immediately here, but we need to have an eye on the future. And certainly even in the here, the pressures of global capital are felt by most Canadian workers. Mm -hmm. And how capital is going to be regulated globally is of profound importance, not just for workers in their workplace, but also for the survival of our species and major environmental questions. I mean, we cannot separate questions of climate change from questions of uh, the regulation of capital. You mentioned climate change. A case study that you've focused on is the work of not just the ITUC, but different um, international union federations, their work that they've been doing with non-governmental organizations. Right. Can you elaborate? Sure. So one of the, what I call collaboration areas, and by collaboration area, I mean just like a, a topic area that the ITUC is engaged in, like climate change. Mm-hmm. It's an area in which they collaborate with other organizations. Mm-hmm and other social movements. So one of the things I've been, what the what kind of drove my research was this was hearing that the ITUC was not only showing up to climate change negotiations with a strong position but that they were working alongside organizations like Greenpeace, Oxfam, Friends of the Earth, uh, World Wildlife Federation on a number of things and and these collaborations could be anything from joint participation in a demonstration outside a COP meeting Mm -hmm. to agreeing on a jointly written statement 
set of demands upon the, the UN leadership. Mm-hmm. Those sorts of things. So what that collaboration looks like in my mind is two things. One is that the the staff, particularly of what was then the ICFTU, came back from the 1992 Rio meetings and said, "We we need to be engaged in this. This is the most important, one of the most important topics of our time. We and we as the representatives of the working class need to be engaged in this debate." It took a number of years for them to convince everybody to really buy in. And, mm-hmm. and so some of the work of the ICFTU and then the ITUC leadership was also internal, getting its own members and, its, and the delegates to its meetings to see the importance of climate change and to see the role of unions and workers in addressing climate change. Mm-hmm. What were the arguing points that the ITUC and ICFTU made in order to get uh, people more on board with climate change or talking about climate change, I should say. Well, part of it was, was like I said, was producing educational materials for its own membership to drive home the point that this is this is real, this is crucial, this needs to be dealt with. Mm-hmm. The second half of that is, is, and this is the big bugaboo when it comes to environmental questions, is how do we address those issues? Uh, they're not class neutral. If, for example, you ju- the, 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 the labor movement just ignores the debate at the international level, what kind of regulatory mechanisms are we going to see? Are we going to be addressing the needs of workers as we address the needs of our species? Or are we simply going to make changes that address climate change but leave a billion people to starve to death mm-hmm. over the next 20 years? So I think what the ITUC has done, has been doing, I should say, over the last, well, since its inception, really, it's mainstreaming class as a discussion in the environmental debate. Mm -hmm. And it's bringing along groups like Greenpeace and Friends of the Earth to their viewpoint by pointing out to them, look, if you want people to get on board with the need to address climate change, you have to address their immediate needs as well as workers. So how are we going to address climate change. And for the ITUC and the labor movement, this is about a really significant shift in our mode of production, a shift towards, you know, focusing on green jobs and what they call a just transition. So when they say just transition, they mean a transition to a low carbon economy that brings those workers from the carbon economy into the new economy, that it doesn't just carve out this new low-carbon economy and leave, like I said, a billion people to starve to death, mm-hmm. that it also addresses the transitional needs of, of workers to get out of the carbon economy and into a low-carbon economy. Mm-hmm. So that's really what they've been doing. And I, th- it seems to me they've been fairly effective. Uh, Greenpeace and groups like that have been using that language when they talk about climate change, and I think that's significant. From the point of view of a um, large corporation uh, or large industry that makes a lot of money through paying workers very little and by using up as many cheap resources as they can all this language sounds very terrifying right Uh, have you had any pushback from from corporations or the the corporate side of things well I didn't really look into that too much I haven't seen any you know frontal attacks, if you were, out of the um, organizations that represent capital at these discussions. Mm -hmm. That's not generally how people operate in that reified world of international diplomacy. It's much more passive-aggressive. Yeah. 
so you have history as a union activist yourself mm -hmm. what made you decide to go to school to research unions further well, part of it is that I love school, and even when I was in my 20s, when I was working full-time, I would take a philosophy class or a poli-sci class in the evening. I just, I really love being engaged that way yeah. in, in the academy. But I, I went back to really get, get serious about doing my, finishing my undergrad and then going on to grad school and around the question of the future of trade unionism, because at the time I was really frustrated with my union's and the leadership and the fact that they didn't seem to understand that the world was changing and we needed to change along with it, maybe not along with it, but we need to adjust our repertoire of action to meet this new challenge. And I, I wasn't convinced, not only was I not convinced that the labor leadership at the time was doing that, I felt that at the time, and I was fairly young at the time, I was in my 20s, I felt that when I did bring up these issues, I would kind of get this, yeah, shut up, kid, you know, get away from the microphone kind of thing. Yeah. Um, this would have been in the 1990s. And there wasn't really, I mean, nobody had even developed these young worker caucuses or anything. There was no kind of sense amongst the labor leadership in Canada that I could see that, um, oh, crap, all us baby boomers are going to retire soon and we need to figure out some sort of way to trend, you know, to bring in young people which is an awfully cynical way to kind of see the view the cri that crisis, but that's kind of how they eventually came to see it. Yeah, it's fascinating that you were frustrated with these Canadian unions and being in these uh, unions that you said weren't really listening to to younger workers, and then you went off and did research on uh, international unions that don't really focus on Canadian work. Was it kind of hard to get away from thinking about Canadian unions go to like going to international unions was that difficult no it wasn't difficult when I was a teenager I mean I was raised in a very raised in a church I guess I mean it, you know it, that's really what it was I mean yeah. I was I had very left-wing priests when I was a kid and they were very internationalist in their outlook and I was raised with the ethos that you need to think about humanity beyond your neighborhood and that you need to think about all of humanity and so I've always been an internationalist yeah. um, even before I was a labor activist so that wasn't difficult I I've always had a curiosity and an interest in how other people live mm -hmm. and how they struggle. And I don't know how that, I don't know how those two things came together. I'm really not sure. I mean, part of it was that I, at a very young age, I, I knew that there were lessons about social struggle that I wasn't going to ever learn here. That there was, that the conditions of Canada and especially, you know, suburban Surrey, weren't weren't gonna I wasn't gonna learn some lessons about how the world works by staying in Surrey yeah. so uh, I guess eventually those two things came together and I had a, a master's supervisor who suggested that I look at how the international union movement was addressing the kind of post-cold war situation in the 1990s mm -hmm. and so I did a master's research uh, project on that cool how do you hope that your research will aid union organizations in the future well I, I and I have to say I know I could just we just just because we I just have me complaining about unions in Canada <laughs> my union QP um, has been really supportive uh, my local union here on campus helped me with my research financially the regional district council of QP helped me with my research financially and the provincial international solidarity committee also not only did they support me financially they have since then said hey come and tell us what you learned nice. um, and so I think that just being a conduit 
for information from the, the South to, you know, my fellow workers in Canada is a role that I'm relishing when it appears. And there are, of course, lots of people involved in the international or in the Canadian labor movement who are concerned about folks in Honduras, folks in India, folks in Turkey. And so that's a really important thing for me is just being a conduit, because, of course, your average worker doesn't have the time to read up on everything. I mean, the Internet is an embarrassment of riches if you want to read about the world. But it's also like, you know, you've got kids and Maybe you're taking classes after work or your commute into town takes an hour every day. So being able to bring that stuff to folks here has been extremely rewarding when I've had that opportunity. And the other thing is when I talk to like my sisters and brothers here about what I found in around union organizing in India. Now, it's it's certainly not something that just can be applied here. Right. The conditions are extremely different. But the one thing that I was able to bring home was many, many examples of creative thinking on the part of Indian uh, labor organizations who are struggling with this situation where 93% of the population is not in a formal employment relationship. So how have they addressed that? And, And of course, what they've done can't be applied across the board in Canada, but I've always, I hope that when I tell these stories, I try to extrapolate from those stories just a sense that we too can be creative in the face of adversity and we can come up with new ideas and we can just kind of try new stuff. (laughs) Again, thank you for listening to Beyond the Jargon on CFUV 89.9.